You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Looking at the book of uh, Isaiah for the next, probably the next few months. Um, if you are a visitor, I do, again, uh, apologize for the cold. On the other hand, if you're a football fan, you'll go to Dens Park. Uh, you will go to Dens, not Tanadice. You will go to Dens Park, and you will be there for two hours in the freezing cold with no heating and not a word of complaint and only a bovril uh, to keep you going. So um, you will get coffee and will not take two hours um, with this. Let's read the first five verses of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It is an extraordinarily beautiful passage, and to my mind, and those of you who are cultured as well, uh, Handel's Messiah automatically comes uh, to mind. It is... Uh, the whole of Isaiah, but especially this latter part, is just such a wonderful, wonderful piece of scripture. I was almost scared to approach it. But I want us to think, first of all, about what we're actually doing here. Because, I mean, why, why are we here? Why do we come here? Why bother? Why not stay at home and watch Andy Murray in another glorious defeat, as I prophesy? Why not, why not do that? Why not just have a lie in bed? Um, why not read a book? Why not commune with nature? And so on. Well, those of us who are believers, we come because we want God to speak to us, because we want guidance. Now, I want to suggest to you that we often go wrong with this. I've been really enjoying and reading from, and Singler is actually going to preach from this later on this year, uh, his latest book, From the Mouth of God. And he's, it, it's got two very useful, the material itself is great, but it's got two very useful appendices. And one of them is from uh, John Murray, who uh, is from my old uh, patch, Sutherland. And he wrote something on the guidance of the Holy Spirit, a very short essay, but it's really, really important. And I thought I would just share it with you as we begin to look at this to help us understand why we're looking at this. There are... Christians today who believe that when they come to church or whatever, they're expecting a direct word from the Lord, irrespective of the Bible. In other words, they want someone to stand up as a prophet and say, thus says the Lord, and so on. What's wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Lots of things uh, are wrong with it. God can do as he pleases. God can reveal, reveal himself as he pleases. But the trouble is that what people do is they interpret their own feelings uh, as, or what other people are saying as the word of God, and then they get very, very confused. 
I'm coming to you this morning and I'm saying this is the word of God and you can look at it and you can check it. But supposing I close the Bible and said, well, the Bible's very nice, but now I'm going to bring you a more contemporary word. I'm going to tell you what God is saying. Supposing I talked rubbish, but if I'm saying this is what God is saying, what are you going to say God is talking rubbish? It then gets very, very confusing. But there's another side to that as well. Sometimes we, we come to church and, you know, to be honest, things are a bit dull and we're wanting God to speak to us directly. And we want to feel it. We remember in the times past that we felt certain things. And you say things like, I really feel or I really felt God speaking to me. And maybe you, you come here this morning and you go away and you say, well, I didn't feel God speaking to me. So God wasn't speaking to me. But actually, that's not the case. And this is where it's really, really important. Murray says this, it needs to be stressed in this connection that the word of God, that's the Bible, is relevant to every situation which we are placed and in one way or another bears upon every detail or every circumstance of life. In other words, please don't do what I heard this morning. I couldn't believe it. I mean, really, sometimes I wish I... How can I be so gullible? I was listening to a sermon... And they read part of the New Testament, they read part of the Old Testament, and then the minister said on the radio, now we're going to have a more contemporary reading. And he just read a novel, part of a novel, as though that was the word of God, saying this is God speaking to us. No, it's not. The Bible is the word of God, and it applies to each and every one of us here. Now, that doesn't mean to say that it's, you come, we're coming to the Bible this morning and it's an intellectual exercise and it doesn't affect your feelings. It does affect our feelings because we're human beings, but we mustn't confuse our feelings with the word. The point is, as we look at these verses, it is God speaking to you directly through his word and he's speaking to your heart. Singler will forgive me for quoting him, but I, I love this. He said, Ours is an immediate access, immediate gratification world. We search the world wide web for information rather than find it in a book. So we rarely learn the context of the raw data we download. It is not accidental that we speak of surfing the web, whereas we still speak of browsing in a book. We type in the question and the answer appears, and we are satisfied that we know what we were looking for. But our minds have not been stretched. Our understanding has not been increased. The more we gain information in this way, the less we really understand. If this transfers to how we read the Bible, the inevitable effect is that we will be Christians who possess Bible knowledge, but whose understanding remains at the level of spiritual infants. We will treat the Bible as a book of information, not as God's word doing God's work in the hearts and lives of God's people. Well, that is what this is. This is God's word doing God's work in the hearts and lives of his people. And so with that as a kind of background, maybe you're not a Christian, you've come along and you say, what's all this about? We believe that this is God speaking to us. It's not a history lesson. It is God speaking to us. The context of of Isaiah is important. Um, We know the date, roughly, that this was written. In the year 701 B.C., Uh, King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invaded Israel. And in chapter, if you go back just a couple of chapters, in chapter 37, that's when uh, Isaiah had prophesied that that would happen, and it occurred. 
chapter 40 is probably several years after that. We know that Isaiah at this time was 69 years old. He uh, was a prophet of the tribe of Judah. He was married with two sons. Um, he called his sons very interesting names. Basically, his, the names were his sermons almost. Possibly, we don't know this from the Bible, but according to Jewish tradition, Isaiah was a relative of the kings. And that may explain, as you read through the book, why he has such access to the kings and the prophets and the politicians. Now, if, I'm doing, if I was doing Isaiah 1 to 39 in one fell swoop, and forgive me for this, it's really just simply, Isaiah is told by God to tell the Israelites that there's trouble coming, that they have rebelled against God, that they are about to go into exile. He prophesies it and it happens. And then Isaiah 40 is, is after that uh, and, and onwards. And that's why many people, uh, people who don't believe that the Holy Spirit is capable of inspiring uh, somebody over a period of time, they argue that there are two different Isaiahs. Well, if you want to get into all that kind of argument, um, talk to Will or talk to Sinclair, because I have no interest in it whatsoever. I have no difficulty in believing that God could inspire Isaiah. And the evidence, if you look at it, the evidence is very strongly in favor that Isaiah was written uh, or came through this one prophet. He saw the trouble coming. Now, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 40, it's kind of, if you again, if you listen to classical music, you get an overture. Uh, you, it's kind of, that's the beginning of the piece. And this is kind of the overture of the whole of it. Isaiah 41 to 11 goes through the rest all the way up to Isaiah 66. And it's talking about things like comfort and atonement and the way of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and the power of the word of God, the city of God, and especially the power and the tenderness of Zion's savior. It is the most explicit prophecies about Jesus Christ are found in this Old Testament passage. If I put it in a summary, the summary would be this. Isaiah is announcing a whole new move of God amongst his people. And even as I say that, I have to say how much I long for that. Because I'm so tired, really tired, of what is going on in this world, the darkness in this world. The darkness, and I have to say this, not because you, you should be Islamophobic and so on, but the darkness of Islam, in, in the horror that is, arises. In, now, we were, um, there are many, many fine Muslims, and many Muslims do many good things, but the religion as a whole, it, it is a dark, dark, dark religion. The hopelessness of atheism, just the sheer emptiness, uh, Donald referred to it in his prayer, Stephen Fry. Uh, when Stephen Fry was here as uh, the university chancellor, and what was it, wasn't chancellor, whatever it was, um, he, you know, he was such an interesting character. He was so witty, so urbane, so intelligent, and so sad, so sad. Just a depressive who's really struggling in so many ways. And yet he goes on YouTube and he is so bitter and so angry against God. Just the hopelessness that is in that kind of atheism. The emptiness of materialism. The brokenness of the church. The divisions within the church. 
the situation that we have in Scotland today where everyone in the church does what seems right in their own eyes, it's so overwhelmingly sad and so discouraging and so dark. And you long not to return to the days when God did this and God did that in the past, but you long for God to do something new in our day. Well, can you imagine that is the situation in Isaiah's time and in Isaiah's day? That the people of God who had built up Jerusalem and the temple and who had been protected by God, suddenly it's all taken away. They're taken into exile. They need God to come and speak to them. And this is exactly what he does. So we notice that he brings comfort to his people. There's a great proclamation that is made here. And that, that's a theme in Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 13, for example. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Or Isaiah 12, in that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Though we, you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. 200,000 people probably taken away in exile from Jerusalem. Many, many people killed. Families split up. Isaiah 39 verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. It's all broke. The church is broke. The covenant people are broke. It seems as though God's promises are broken. And it requires comfort. A commentator called Barry Webb says this, and I think this is really important. Isaiah's new message is for people whose whole world has been shattered. See, some of you as Christians, you've gone along in the Christian life and it's been fine, you've been doing great. But then your whole world has been shattered. Your partner's left you. One of your children has died. You've got a really serious illness. You've had a terrible accident. Things have fallen apart in so many ways, in friendships, at work and at church. And your whole world has been shattered. And Webb goes on to say this, and for people like that, cheap comfort is not only a waste of time, it is cruel. Comfort that is not grounded in reality is not comfort at all. Do you know what we do with people? We come and we give them a dummy. We give them a spiritual pacifier. We tell them, it's okay. It's okay. There you go. Here, take your blanket. Take your comfort blanket. Get in your comfort zone. Go to your special place. But you know, and I know, that that's an absolute waste of time. And it's not only a waste of time, it's cruel. It is like giving the child the dummy thinking that they're going to get milk and they don't get anything. We need comfort. And God comes and he says, comfort my people. Now, I find this wonderful because I think sometimes, some of us who are preachers who believe God's word, and sometimes you can get people, we get really frustrated and we get really discouraged. You know what we do? We communicate to God's people 
the frustration and the discouragement and God is coming along and saying, no, no, I want you to comfort my people with real comfort, not fake, not pretend, not there, there, everything is going to be all right, but reality. And look how he does it. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, it's a wonderful phrase that's used here and it just simply means speak to the heart. Not in the way that we would use heart, but in the way that the Hebrews would use heart, which is to the mind, to the intellectual, and to the emotional. And God is saying, speak tenderly, speak to the heart. And the word that's used has so many rich variety of meanings. It carries this idea of reassurance. It carries the idea of putting an arm around someone and reassuring them. It carries also the idea of winning a person back. Like Joseph to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 21. So then he said, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. They're words of refreshment and encouragement. And in these dark days, actually what we don't need is someone coming telling us how rubbish we all are. What we need is God coming and picking us up. Later on, in verse 11, you read, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. It's as though we've been running along like a child and we've fallen over and our father runs to us and picks us up and reassures us. And we're screaming and yelling. And it's as though it's that image of God coming to us and we're moaning and we're complaining and we're struggling. And instead of coming and giving us a good slap and telling, come on, snap out of it, he speaks encouraging and reassuring. And what does he say? What's so reassuring? Even in the, the few verses we've got here, the first is this, you are my people. Comfort my people, says your God. My people, your God. Jeremiah 7, I gave them this command, obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you that it may go well with you. You know what God is saying to his people? He's saying, Jerusalem is broken and invaded. People have been killed. People have been exiled. The temple, it's gone. But you are still my people. The covenant still stands. He remembers Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. In Deuteronomy 12, 11, we're told this about Jerusalem. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you. Your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. God says, I'm bringing you this. You come to that city and now the city is gone and God says the covenant still stands. He remembers. See, for some of us, I think the thing you need to hear more than anything else is that God is still your God and you are still his people because the devil has told you, no, you're not, you're finished. You've done such bad things. You've wandered so far as a Christian that you're done. And if people in this church knew what you had done, you'd be gone. And that's what you feel. 
And God comes and he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. You still have a father who loves you and you still have a home to go to. That's actually what I think about Stephen Fry. You know what I think? I honestly think, I think you've got no one. Not really. You may have just got married in your civil partnership, but you've got no one. Not really. And you don't have a home to go to. Having a home is just so vital and so important. And in terms of a spiritual home, I think an awful lot of us have just wandered and God comes and he speaks tenderly. But he also says this, you've been forgiven. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now there's an argument about, is this saying it has been done or it will be done? John L. Mackay of the Free Church College, he argues in his commentary that these are what are called prophetic perfects. They're looking forward. You're going to be completely forgiven. I think probably both are true. Were they being punished? Leviticus 26, 18, if after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Or Revelation 18.6, give back to her as she has given, pay her back double for what she has done, mix her a double portion from her own cup. When we sin against God, it always comes back to haunt us. You cannot sin against God with impunity. Some people think that this passage here refers to later on in Isaiah 61 verse 7, a reward Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. But it's better in context, I think, to see this as punishment for sin. And what what had they done that was wrong? Her hard service. Service here is referring to military service or possibly service in the temple. And here is the issue. They'd meant to serve the Lord, but they'd failed. God had given them something to do and they had failed. They needed forgiveness. And I think, I know that that's exactly the same for us. God calls us to him. We respond. We are set free to serve the living God. And you know what's happened just over the years, gradually, bit by bit, we've drifted. Most of us have not gone and done some major mega sin that would fill the tabloids. But what we've done is we've just drifted bit by bit and the service that we were supposed to do, we haven't done. We failed. And God warns us and God tells us of what is to come and the consequences of that and what you you sow, you will reap. We've rebelled and we need forgiveness. Now, I'm saying this Obviously, for those of you who are not yet Christians, that is true of you. But it is also true of us who are believers. We need atonement. It needs to be paid for. And here's the announcement. Tell my people, tell Jerusalem, that our hard service has been completed, that their sin has been paid for. Now, it's only when we get to Isaiah 53 that we will understand how that happens. But it is an extraordinary announcement in advance of what would occur. 
And I think it's really important for you to understand and to grasp this. You are probably only slightly aware of how far you have drifted away from God. You are probably only slightly aware of just how obnoxious your sin is to him. But even that slight awareness is enough to make you say, I'm finished. I'm done. God can't accept me. He did before. He gave me a chance. I served him for a while, but now I've turned my back. Now I've got it wrong. Oh, if people only knew. But God knows, and I know that God knows, and I'm done. And God comes to you and he says, no, no. Your sin is atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. You have been forgiven. It's interesting that in James, James associates prayer in terms of sickness also with forgiveness. Why? Because even when we are really, really sick and we are calling out to God to heal us in our pain and our sorrow and our suffering, sometimes within us we are deeply aware that what's really wrong, it's not that it's the cause of our illness, but the most important thing that's wrong is our broken relationship with God. And we find it really hard to believe that God will forgive us. And that's why this message is such an encouragement to the Lord's people that it's been paid for, it's been done. You, you don't go, if, you, if, if you're in this church today and you said, right, you know, you know, David was right, I've turned away from God. I need to go and make up for that. I need to go and get this right. Now, from now on, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. You haven't grasped what is being said here. God is not saying, you've really screwed up, now go out and get it right so that we can sort this out. He's saying, you've really screwed up, and I've sorted it. I've paid for it. I've done it. It's finished. And once you grasp that, it's such a liberating thing. Because verses 3 to 5, he then goes on to say this. I'm coming. He, he, he says, you're my people. He says, you've been forgiven. And he says, I'm coming. And verses three to five carries this idea of a great procession. First of all, it's um, in the wilderness that the place is to be prepared for the Lord. The emphasis is not so much on, it's the voice in the wilderness calling out. It's that it's in the wilderness, God comes. Now the wilderness would remind God's people of the exodus. I think the wilderness for us speaks to us of a spiritual wilderness, a dry period, a bleak period in our lives. And yet in that wilderness, the prophet Hosea saw it as a place of God calling his people to himself. Hosea 2.14 says this, Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. See, we have this idea, I'm in a desert place, I'm in a tough place, I'm in a hard place, and God's going to come and he's just going to really have a go at me. And he's really going to rebuke me. But the image that Hosea uses is of a lover coming and wooing 
And this is the extraordinary condescension of God that he could come and he could command and he could, he could destroy us. And instead he comes and he says, look, you feel this way about me. Now listen, I want to show you what I'm like. And of course, in the New Testament, we see that in John the Baptist. Matthew 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Here's the paradox. That at this very moment in time, you may be deeply conscious of a spiritual wilderness and spiritual dryness. And in that, it's in that very place that God comes and God renews his call to you. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, the context of this in that culture is there were no properly maintained roads. When a king came to visit, the herald was sent out and had to announce that the king was coming. And basically what they would be saying is, the king's coming, get the roads ready, and make a highway. And it literally was a highway. It was higher than the other. It was, make a road, make a highway, so that the king can, can march along that. I remember up in um, Easter Ross, as a child in primary school, being utterly amazed at the Nig Oil rig yard there, when the queen came to visit and to open certain things. And do you know what? They, they actually did this. They painted half of the houses white. They left the bits that the queen wouldn't see unpainted. But just the bits that she would see, they, I, could, I, I was absolutely gobsmacked that they did that. Almost turned me into a Republican straight away. But it was, it was, a, it was I just thought, my goodness, that's what... But in a sense, that's almost what's happening here. You're preparing the way for the king to come. And part of it here is get rid of the barriers. Get rid of the things that would prevent this highway being built. Now, this is not talking about a literal highway in the desert. It's talking about the need for us to prepare for the coming of the king. The preparation is a spiritual one. It's repentance. Hence, John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And you know... God is willing to forgive, far more willing than we are to receive forgiveness. But some of us still have this pride within us that says we can negotiate with God. We can deal with God. And it's an obstacle. And we need to get rid of these obstacles. And we need to ask God to help us get rid of these obstacles that are in the way. I am certain of this that there are some of you here who could know a far deeper understanding and blessing of God. And in, in, in some ways you absolutely long for that. But the trouble is you're not willing to let the obstacles be removed. You want to have your cake and eat it. And God says, no, I've forgiven you. Make straight the way, a highway for our God. And his glory will be revealed the rough ground become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. When God comes, his glory is revealed. Now, we'll see more of that later on, but the, the idea in the Bible is not that God gathers a select group of people to himself, and they are the only ones who see. It's that the whole world will see. Abraham is called that the nations may be blessed. David is called 
Esther is called. Ruth is called. The disciples are called. Mary is called. That the world may see and glorify God. Let every creature, says Psalm 145, praise his holy name forever and ever. It will reveal his glory. In Ezekiel 43 verse 2, I was really struck by this verse where it talks about the glory of the Lord being revealed in the land. I'm not satisfied with having a private, personal, spiritual experience. And I'm not satisfied with having a church that's doing all right. I want to see the glory of the Lord being revealed throughout the land. So that when people like Stephen Fry do blaspheme, there are people who can go, no, no, that's not the God we know. That's not the God we know. What are you doing? Why are you blaspheming our God? Now, when was this promise going to be fulfilled? Well, we know. When would this coming be? It wasn't going to be in a rebuilding of the temple. It wasn't going to be in Israel becoming a mighty nation. It was going to be when Jesus would come in that very desert when he would be prepared for by John the Baptist. It was going to be the return of the King, Jesus Christ. And I love this just whole image of the way of the King. Incidentally, it's also the way of his people. There are some people who look and say, no, this is a prophecy. And in fact, I think if I remember rightly, Calvin even argued this, that it was a prophecy of the return of Israel to Jerusalem. It's not. I really don't think it is. But... At one level it is because it's the king's highway and we're on the king's highway. We follow Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, it's not because you belong to a denomination. It's because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's certain. The mouth of the... All people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 1 20, if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 58, 14, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now that's where we came in. You see this book? It's the mouth of the Lord. It's the word of God. You can go and say, well, I had this dream, or I had this feeling, or God told me this. I'm sorry, it's not, it's, that's not the mouth of the Lord. But this is the mouth of the Lord. And the Bible has never been false and will never be false. So you can be in a situation like Isaiah was, like the Jewish people were at this time. And you can say, where is the God of Israel? Where is the glory of God? And God's word comes and brings this comfort. So to summarize it, just to, to finish all of this, we, we need to shout this message. The gospel of Isaiah 40, the good news of Isaiah 40, the good news of forgiveness, the good news of God coming to his people, the good news of the return of the king is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just want to simply ask, where are the prophets? Where are the people who are crying out in the wilderness and pointing people to Jesus Christ? Where are the artists and the musicians and the writers? And perhaps above all, where are the preachers? Because again this morning, that service I listened to, the man 
talked about Brahmin and paganism and contemporary reading and he mixed it all with the word of God and he did this in a Christian church and announced it. It was on national radio. And you know this? Not a single person in the church will bat an eyelid or say, you should be out of here because you're a false prophet. And yet that's exactly what he is. I, I just thought of people waking up and, and in the streets of Dundee and switching on their radio and maybe unfortunately getting it on Radio Scotland and, and hearing, oh, that's a service, I wonder what that, and then hearing this rubbish and not hearing about Jesus Christ. Well, where are the prophets and where are the people who are going to proclaim? The Christian Union in the university here will have an outreach week, I think, next week. They're going to be in here every morning praying and so on. We'll join them in prayer and pray for them. Pray that they would have the courage and the strength to proclaim the word of the Lord and an understanding of how to be able to do it. How do we cry out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the king? That for me is key. Also it's key is to realize how God's word brings real comfort. You're discouraged, you're broken, you're disillusioned, you're conscious of your own sin. Don't run away from God's word, run to it. Its purpose is to bring comfort. There are those of us who are preachers who we forget that at times and we spiritually stick the boot in and that's wrong. And there are people who bring false comfort and that's wrong. But honestly, when you come to God's word and you look at it and you examine it and you pray and you study, it is the most encouraging and incredible thing. In fact, it's so incredible that you look at it and you go, really? Really? Are you really telling me that God is saying to me that whatever I've done, I'm forgiven? Yes, I am. I'm telling you that. Are you really saying to me that God wants to come to me? That God wants to come, that God is wooing me, that I don't have to persuade him? That he's trying to persuade me? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, I am. That's exactly. And I'm not telling you that. God is saying that. It's an extraordinary thing. The devil takes the word of God and he causes us to doubt the word of God. The devil takes the word of God and he goes, oh, I don't know if I can understand that. I don't know. Don't you understand? This is what is needed. I don't need contemporary readings. I don't need someone standing up and saying, well, I got this feeling from the Lord. I need someone to tell me this is what God says. Because that's direct. You will not get more direct. Supposing Jesus Christ stood in front of you and spoke, you will not get more direct than you get through the word of God. And that is why the devil keeps attacking it. God's word brings real comfort. And then let me apply it in this way. We have sinned. We have failed in our, our service. Stop going on, oh, they failed, or that one's failed, or this one's failed. No, I failed, and you failed. And our sin has been paid in full. God picks us up, and he says, yeah, I know. You fell over, you got it wrong, you made a mess. I know, I'm God, I know. Get on, carry on, because our sin has been paid in full. There's not a single thing that you have done or could do that Jesus has not paid for. And the king is coming. And we need to prepare for the coming of the king by repenting. Martin Luther was so right that the Christian life consists in daily repentance. Daily repentance. Not because by our repentance we think we're earning salvation, 
but because by our repentance we are acknowledging our weakness and realizing it's only God who can forgive us. And then for those of you who doubt, this is certain for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What more do you want? You want to work it all out? You want to understand God? My friend David Meredith said about Stephen Fry, I give a wonderful illustration. He said, Stephen Fry is a massive intellect and you put all his intellect on a blank paper that's full of knowledge and his intellect is a tiny little dot. He knows so little. We all know so little. But if we know what God says to us, we know enough. It's certain. It's certain the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So I just simply ask, what are you waiting for? Why would you wallow in your own guilt? Why would you wallow in your own sin? Why would you try and find your own way when the mouth of the Lord has spoken? Why do you think that God is like some tyrant that that you have to appease in order to get anywhere near when he proclaims himself to you as a lover who's wooing, who's calling in the wilderness of your heart and the brokenness of your life and telling you that your hard service has been completed, that your sin has been paid for. God comforts you. Receive his comfort and go out renewed and revived and restored and pray that he would have mercy upon many more. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to understand. Help us to apply it. Help us to hear what you say to us. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.